Uh, this morning we continue our journey with the people of Israel uh, as they've been led out of Egypt and they head towards the promised land. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus 17, verses 1-7 through 7 together. It's a shorter passage, Exodus 17. And you can go ahead and turn there. And uh, as you, as you um, turn there, I uh, just want to just briefly look back at what's come before. Uh, when we read Scripture, we're not reading it in isolation from uh, everything around it. It's not like Scripture is just this book of uh, good moral tales. Um, are interesting stories that are put together and they're disconnected from one another. Uh, they actually flow together and they tell a much bigger, much greater story than any one can, can contain. And the Exodus that we read in the second book of the Bible, the Exodus is a story of God making Himself known. It's a story of God making Himself known to His people. Back in Genesis, if we, if we back up even a little bit more, back in Genesis, we have God creating a people for His own glory. In the garden, you've got Adam and Eve. God creates them. He's made, in their, he's, he's made them in His image. And then sin enters the world and seeks to uh, pervert what God has created. And sin sows seeds of doubt in God's Word. And then God goes on from there and He, he continually preserves a people for his, for his own glory. And you see Him save Noah and his family in the flood. Uh, in Genesis 12, we see a guy named Abram introduced, this moon worshiper. And God comes to this moon worshiper who really is not much of anybody and comes to him and says, I am going to make you into a great people and into a, a, a great nation. You're going to be a blessing to all nations and I'm going to give you a land. And Genesis tells the story from Genesis 12 on, tells the story of this guy Abram who becomes Abraham who has a son named Isaac who God gives this promise to Isaac and God then gives this promise to one of Isaac's sons, Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons and God is being true to His Word. He's making them into this great people. But at the end of Genesis, we get into Genesis and turn the page to Exodus and they're a great people. They're a numerous people but they're not in the promised land. They're in a foreign land, Egypt. And what we see in the Exodus, God working to make Himself known to this people as He comes to them, as He hears their, hears their cries, and He delivers them miraculously from bondage to the king of Egypt, bondage to, to Pharaoh. And He does this through the plagues. We've, we've gone through the ten plagues and all the things that God did to deliver them. Then we're brought to the Red Sea in Genesis 14, and the people of Israel, they're, they're trapped. They're on the verge of entering the promised land. They're out of slavery. But all hope seems gone. They've got the Egyptian army on one side and the Red Sea on the other. And it's like it's game over for them. But God had bigger plans, better plans. God wanted to make His glory known as He delivered them. So He parts the Red Sea. They're delivered through the Red Sea. Their, their Egyptian pursuers, their enemy pursuers, they're then drowned in the water. The very water that delivered the people of Israel brought judgment on the people of Egypt. And people of Israel are saved. They're finally free, right? No, they're not quite there. They're, they've moved from bondage to Pharaoh now to what we've seen the last couple of weeks, bondage to their sin. Uh, they've got a heart problem still. And so the first thing, they, they, enter, they cross the Red Sea, they enter in the wilderness, they're on their way to the promised land, and they're thirsty. There's no good water to drink. So what does God do? He turns this bitter pool of water into sweet water that sustains them. And then He brings them to an oasis with plentiful water and resources for them on their journey. Like, all, all's well and good, right? No. Now they go on and now they're hungry. 
The people are hungry, and so they grumble once again. They cry out to God, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It's Exodus 16.3. But God responds to this grumbling, this hunger, by providing meat that evening and raining bread from the sky that next morning. More than that, He keeps on giving them bread. Day after day, every day, God provides all that His people need. Every day, God provides all that His people need. He does this once again to test His people. This is what Exodus 16 tells us. He, he wants to show them that they, they were not delivered out of Egypt to pursue their own desires, to do what they wanted to do. They were delivered out of Egypt to bring glory to God through their trust and their obedience. So through both their hunger and thirst, God is teaching His people to trust in Him. Trust that He is enough for them. Now, I don't know what your expectations would be if you were God of the Israelite people. But after working, first this incredible deliverance from, from the hand of Pharaoh, but then working these two incredible miracles. I mean, you've got bitter water made sweet with a log. Kind of crazy. And bread from heaven. That's probably a little crazier. You'd think that like, as God, you've made your point pretty clear. Like, they should get it now. Israel should have learned their lesson. But as Larry pointed out last week, we learn through repetition. So God brings Israel once again to very similar circumstances that we've encountered already because He has more to teach them, more to show them. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to walk through this passage. I'm going to make some comments on it as we go, and then we're we're going to really look at two two lessons from it. So look with me, just Exodus 17, verse 1, says this, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Uh Uh-oh. It's like, here we go again. No water for the people to drink. Now I want us to notice something that comes out just in this first verse before we move on. Do you remember how the people of Israel are being led? They're being led by this pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. God is leading them. So when we read this verse that they are moving to this new location, they're moving according to the commandment of the Lord. That's what the verse says. So we see their obedience right here. 17 verse 1. We see the people trusting God and doing what He says. But, but just because they're doing what God says doesn't mean it's going to be easy for them. But I think for us, that's often our expectation. It's like, I mean, if you're a kid, like, I'm obeying mom. I'm going to get ice cream tonight. Like, that's what I, I deserve. It should go well for me. As you get older, it might be like, I've made these sacrifices for God. Or I've I passed on this opportunity, so now everything should be smooth sailing from here on out. But we should take note here of what happens with the Israelites. Because even in their obedience, they still face challenges. They face temptations. They face opt- obstacles and opposition. And we need to be prepared for that. In our obedience, we're going to face challenges, temptations, obstacles, opposition. John Calvin writes this. He says, None are fit to act rightly, but those who are well prepared to endure the assaults of temptation. We're not fit to act right unless we're well prepared to endure the assaults of temptation. So following God, obeying God, requires perseverance. Obedience just doesn't end with one step. Obedience goes through every step. But look at how Israel 
responds to this challenge in their obedience. Look at 17 verse 2 at the beginning there. Therefore, as if it's like a foregone conclusion, no water to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. This word here used for quarrel isn't like they just complained a little bit. Like, yeah, I'm a little thirsty. No, it's like they were hostile. They were hostile towards Moses. Things were heating up quickly. Now, when I read this, I wonder, like, was anybody there saying, hey, remember a few weeks ago when we were thirsty? And there was this bitter water made sweet, and then we were brought to the oasis? Like, I can't wait to see what God does next. Do you remember that? Or, like, somebody saying, hey, remember a couple weeks ago when we were hungry? And, like, bread came down from the sky? And it's been there every day since then? Like, even this morning, we went out and got this bread that God rained down from the sky. What's He going to do now that we're thirsty? You'd think that people would have learned from these two situations. That their response to their thirst, that should be turning to God, looking to Him, waiting on Him for their certain help and relief. But that's not what happened. Continue in verse 2. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Moses jumps right to the issue here. The big problem here is not the Israelites' thirst. The big problem is that the people are testing God. Why do you test the Lord? Now what does it mean? What does it mean for Israel to test the Lord? This is what testing God is. It's demanding that God prove Himself to you. Demanding that God do something special for you. It's putting God on probation. And saying, God, I will trust you if you do this. If you do that. Testing God looks at the circumstances you face, the circumstances of your life, and holds that, God, you should do more for me. In many ways, God, testing God, it's, it's a questioning of His power, of His faithfulness, of His goodness. So Israel comes to test the Lord. Now you'd expect that God would then, just right then, judge His people. But let's read what happens next. Let's go on in verse 3. But the people there... The people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Once again, the Israelites do not trust God. Once again, they they grumble. Once again, they want to go back to Egypt. So you want to go back to Egypt? That might ring some bells for some people. And they take it all out on Moses. We see it in the next verse. Here is Moses standing between the people of Israel and God. He's been their mediator all along. And he's confounded. He's fearful. Look at verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The people of Israel, they're thirsty and they're angry. They are hostile. And all of their rage is directed one place. And it's not the place you'd expect. It's at Moses. But think about how ridiculous this is. The Israelites, they go off to confront Moses. They take issue with Moses. They disregard the pillar of cloud and fire that's been directing them on their way. They disregard the great deliverance that was worked for them through these ten incredible plagues. They disregard the parting of the Red Sea to allow them to pass through and then bring back the waters over the Egyptian army. They disregard the bitter water made sweet. They disregard the manna sent from the sky. Who made all these happen? things happen? God made them happen. Not Moses. 
But their beef, Israel, the Israelites' beef is with Moses, not God. Their inability to view Moses as God's servant points to a much, much deeper problem. It points to a lack of true faith in God. It shows that they have hearts that believe that God does not care about them. Instead, it's all Moses' fault. Here, the Israelites blame Moses as having acted against what is best for them. But they don't have a leader problem. They have a heart problem. We see this same thing unpacked in Psalm 78. Larry pointed it out to us last week. In Psalm 78, 18, 78 verse 18, we read about when the people of Israel were hungry. The psalmist writes this. He says, They tested God in their heart, demanding the food that they craved. They didn't have a food problem, or in, or in this case... Exodus 17, a thirst problem or a leader problem. They have a heart problem. The problem's in here. But do we at times respond in a similar way? Maybe you're under your parents' authority and you see this as the source of your problems. So you take it out on them. You quarrel with them. But you don't see that your real issue is not with your parents, but with God. For God has placed you under their authority. Or maybe you feel held back by your spouse. Could be for any number of reasons. Maybe it's a, 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 what you perceive as a lack of spiritual maturity. Or what you see as just a prolonged season of physical suffering. You feel held back by your spouse. Deep down you feel that you want more for yourself. And so you can be tempted to take issue with them. To quarrel with them. To complain about them. But you fail to recognize the sovereign hand of God that has brought you to where He's brought you. He has put you together. He has seen fit to bring you together for His good for His glory and your good, so that you might be like Him. And your tendency is to grumble and to grow bitter. It's not just a sin against your spouse. It's a sin against God. You've got a heart problem. And this was Israel's problem. Last week, Larry said, we can respond to God's testing two ways, grumbling or obedience. And the Israelites here, they they grumble and they take it a step further by testing God. They take their grumbling and turn it into testing. Now, I think here we have to pause and contemplate a little bit more what's going on. Because for many of us, this is a familiar short story. It's just seven verses. I timed, like, trying to read it slowly, out loud. It took 46 seconds to read these seven verses. But we want to be careful not to miss the significance of what God wants to communicate to us in just these 46 seconds that we could read. And before we look at verses 5 and 6, I want us to jump down to verse 7, which just sheds a little bit more light on what's been going on up to this point. Look at verse 7. It says, And he, Moses, called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Whether or not Israel was actually saying those words, that's what was in their heart. That was what their testing was all about. Is the Lord among us or not. They're putting, as, as C.S. Lewis has said, they're putting God in the dock. The dock is in the courtroom. It's where the accused party sits. So Israel is accusing God through their grumbling. They're testing, saying, prove to us whether or not you were here. Let's step back and think about how you might respond to Israel's test of God. Again, think about the circumstances. We've been revisiting them again and again. Just on this day, this very day that they're complaining and quarreling with Moses, they've gone out that morning and gathered all the manna they need, all the food they need for that day. 
The very people testing God, they have their bellies full because of God. So Israel, they come to test the Lord. And again, you would expect that God would then judge the people. But look what happens. Look at verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, the people that want to kill you, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. God tells Moses to go out in front of this people that wants to kill him with, with his staff. Again, this is the same staff that turned the Nile into blood. The same staff that, that turned into a serpent when he threw it on the ground. The same staff that was held up over the Red Sea and the waters parted. This staff, it represents God's power and presence. It represents God's authority over all things, including his people. So God tells Moses to go before the people with his staff. And look where God tells Moses to go. He tells him to go to Horeb. Now to us, that's just a weird name for a place. But Horeb literally means dry and desolate place. This doesn't sound like the kind of place where Israel's thirst is going to be quenched. But this is where God tells Moses to go. Let's read on in verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Imagine the scene once more. Israel has cried out to Moses, prove, cried out to God, prove that you're really here. Is the Lord among us or not? And once again, once again, God makes Himself known to His people. In His grace, in His power, in His glory, He makes Himself known to His people. He is their provider. He hears their cries and He gives them all they need. God didn't lead Israel out into the wilderness to see them die. God led them out into the wilderness to show His glory. He is the faithful, sufficient, powerful God. So what we were singing about this morning, how great is His faithfulness. Everything changes, but He stays the same. His Word and kingdom endure. This God that we're reading about in Exodus 17 is the same God we're singing to this morning. The unchanging, faithful, powerful, good God. Now here we have a really, really wonderful story. But you may be thinking, like, this is great. But it sure seems a lot like the last two stories. Why do we need three stories when we've already got two stories? Why do we have three? And it's not like they're spread out throughout Exodus. They're right in a row. Boom, boom, boom. Well, last week, Larry mentioned the importance of repetition. We learn through repetition. Right now, I'm coaching my son's baseball team, and I'm constantly talking to the kids about practice good habits. Practice good habits. We repeat the right thing again and again so that in the game we'll do the right thing. That's one reason this story with these similar themes is here again. Repetition. So that we might learn. We might be trained. But there's more for us here. This little story in Exodus 17, it acts as a signpost to us on a journey. We're on a journey. And this is a big signpost along that journey. Just last night, our family went to the Orioles game. 
and on our drive, we come across sign after sign on the highway. Now, did you know that there's a color system for this, these signs in, in the U.S.? And you probably do know this. Maybe you haven't thought about it, though. Like, you see a red sign. What does that always mean? It always means stop. When you see a green sign, green signs, they always have to do with direction. They, they tell us where we are and how to proceed. When you get onto I-70 heading east from Baltimore, I mean, heading west from Baltimore, you see a sign and it's got like St. Louis, 1,700 miles away. Denver, 2,200 miles away. It tells you what's, what's coming up. It's a sign of direction. Yellow signs, they always mean caution. They're, they're warnings. They mean be alert. So you'll see a deer crossing or a railroad crossing. These are all yellow signs. They signal us to what could potentially be a danger. Orange signs, they relate to construction. Black and white signs, they post regulations, laws. So speed limit signs, they're always black and white. Blue signs, they offer information. Brown signs talk about local points of interest. So there's this whole scheme for the colors of the signs that we come across on the highway. Now in many ways, Exodus 17, it acts as a sign that we encounter on our journey. And with the rest of our time, I'm going to talk about two ways that Exodus 17 is this signpost to us. So first, Exodus 17, this passage, is a yellow warning sign. It's a yellow warning sign. Exodus 17, verse 1 through 7, is this big yellow warning sign telling us about the danger of sin. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he actually looks back to this very story. This very situation in the wilderness. And he writes this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11 and 12. He says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone take heed lest he fall. So Paul looks back on this situation 1,400 years before his time and says this happened, it's written down for our instruction. And the hour he's using there is referring to the church. That's us today for our instruction. So let us take heed together. Now, one of the most helpful questions to ask when you're reading Scripture is, uh, reading the Old Testament in particular, is like, does this happen anywhere else? Does this come up anywhere else in Scripture? And we're in luck because our story today comes up all over the place. I guess it's not luck. It's God's kindness, God's grace. But it comes up all over the place. So one example is 1 Corinthians 10, I just mentioned. Every time this story, or the one like it in Numbers 20 comes up, it's given to warn the reader. Every time. There's like a dozen times this comes up. Every time it's to warn the reader. Scripture points to it as this big yellow warning sign saying, watch out. Let's look at one example. Psalm 95. And ironically enough, Psalm 95 was the first sermon I ever preached at Grace Church. In Psalm 95, after an extended call to worship based on God's character and work, we read this in verse 7, and I think it's going to be projected. It it is. Look at that. Magically. Not magically. God's grace, kindness. (laughs) We read this in verse 7. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. Exodus 17, 1 through 7. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So the psalmist, he looks back at what took place here at Massa and Meribah and says, don't respond like they did. You've seen my work. Don't harden your hearts like Israel did. 
Now, it's interesting to note that what the psalmist says happened to Israel there, the hardening of their hearts, that should be a familiar phrase to us as we've gone through Exodus. We've come across it a lot. And it was always used in reference to Pharaoh. He hardened his heart. And that's just what the Israelites are doing here. But the psalmist goes on from there because what began as grumbling for the Israelites results in God saying at the end of Psalm 95, they shall not enter my rest. These Israelites who hardened their hearts at Massa and Meribah, they shall not enter my rest. The end result of Israel's grumbling, of their testing, of their unbelief, was rejection of God. Rejection from God. This is a warning we must take note of. And this is, this is the, the signpost that we must recognize. It says this. It says, danger, destruction, and death are ahead. All sin has a direction. And this is the direction of all sin. Destruction and death. Sin isn't content just to stay little. It wants to destroy us. Sin is dangerous. For the Israelites, their first problem was ungratefulness. It was ingratitude. And ingratitude, ungratefulness in our lives, it's a subtle thing. And it comes up all the time. Here they are, God delivering them from slavery, guiding their steps in the cloud. They're out collecting manna in the morning. But when they get thirsty, all of these blessings, all these things that God has done in their lives, they seem to be forgotten. The people are ungrateful. But sin isn't happy just to sit there in that ungratefulness. Sin wants to go further. Sin has a direction. So, Israel grumbles. Ungratefulness leads to grumbling. Israel grumbles about their situation. Now, grumbling, like ungratefulness, it's, it's subtle. But it's perverse. In our age of, of hashtag first world problems, complaining can seem like no big deal. Oh, traffic was terrible today. Or, I have to eat that again? Or like, why can't I wake up pain-free? Or, I can't believe my parents are making me do this. All of these statements, they're forms of grumbling. They feel like no big deal in the moment, but this airing of grievances is so much more. Sin has a direction. Grumbling is toxic. It's poisonous. And it affects those around us. It affects our own hearts. Grumbling, it easily spreads to others. It can be easy to have a conversation with your child or your siblings or your parents or a friend or a coworker and throw something out there for them to agree with. So like, can you believe he said this? Just looking for agreement. Grumbling is toxic. It spreads. But not only does it spread to others, it also poisons our own hearts. It hardens us. It has a direction. All sin has a direction. Sin wants to own more of us. So it leads to bitterness with what we have to deal with. Grumbling is quite literally good for nothing. But it gets worse from there. So ingratitude, grumbling. But grumbling doesn't just stink for you. Grumbling goes beyond you and says something about God. The direction of grumbling is unbelief. Now it's getting like real serious. Like we start with ingratitude. I've got to eat that again. Grumbling. Unbelief. Grumbling puts God on trial and says, God, you are guilty. Grumbling says, God, you haven't given me the meal I wanted, the relationships I wanted, the toys I wanted, the health I wanted, the memories I wanted. You didn't give me the life I deserve. I deserve more. 
I deserve better. This is what all grumbling states in one way or another. I deserve more. I deserve better. Whatever the reason for why we complain, why we feel discontent, ultimately it goes straight to the top and expresses that what God has given us is not good enough. And this is crazy. Larry talked about it last week. He talked about the insanity of sin. It makes us crazy. John Calvin once said, he says, our passions hurry us on to madness. I like that phrase. It, they, they hurry us on to madness. And that's just what happens in Israel's case. But sin doesn't stop there. It's still moving us on. And where it ultimately wants to move us to is judgment. The wages of sin is death. All sin sets us in the dangerous direction of death and destruction. That's where sin's going. This passage is meant to be that yellow warning sign to correct us. Yesterday, I was really helped. I appreciated uh, Ted Tripp. He talked about Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. And it's, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother so that it, may go, that it may go well with you and you may live a long life. And he talked about this circle of God's blessing. If you obey, if you obey your parents, you honor your father and mother, it's going to go well with you. You'll have a long life. And there's a circle of blessing. And what disobedience does is it pulls us out of that circle. And it pulls us into this area of danger. That's, that's just what I'm talking about this morning. Sin has a direction, and that direction, that disobedience has a direction. That direction is danger. It's death and destruction. And what correction does, what discipline does, is it brings us back to that circle. And so that's the same for children as it is for adults. And so this passage is corrective for us this morning. Because sin affects us all. It affects every one of us. The devil works through sin seeking someone to devour. And we give sin room in our lives. We're ungrateful for what we've been given. We can all relate to this. Every single one of this. We're unkind to others, our siblings or our friends. We want revenge on those who hurt us. This sin wants to own us and destroy us. Sin has a direction. John Owen says this. This is a sobering quote. John Owen, 17th century Puritan. Sin will not only be striving, acting, rebelling, troubling, disquieting. Those are all bad things, but it's not only going to do that. If left alone, if not continually mortified, it will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, soul-destroying sins. Sin aims always at the utmost. Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. I don't think we think about this very often, but all sin has a direction. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, might it grow to its head. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. Sin has a direction. And God's given us Exodus 17 as this yellow warning sign warning us of the direction of sin. It acts to bring us back under God's authority, trusting Him, His promises, His power, His provision. But the significance of this story in Exodus 17 doesn't end there. So it's this yellow warning sign. The second thing I want to highlight, it's also at the same time 
a green direction sign. One of those green signs that you come across on the highway telling you where you're at, giving you a reference point, telling you how far you have to go. I remember as a kid living in Charlotte, and whenever we'd be heading back, we'd come down from the D.C. area, 95, 85. I would always be paying attention to these signs, just waiting to get home, wanting to know how close we are, how much longer it was, watching the miles tick down. Exodus 17 provides us with direction as it shows us how God is going to work in the world. It shows us what's to come. It points ahead to our, our true hope, our true home, where we can find true life and rest. This passage is a big green sign pointing us to Jesus. And the sign comes in the shape of a rock. Think back again to the scene. The Israelites are thirsty. They demand water. They quarrel with Moses, ultimately pointing their finger at God. Is the Lord among us or not? When God tells Moses to go before the people in that dry and desolate place, we have this courtroom scene developing. God is the accused, God in the dock. You don't care about us. And Israel is the the prosecutor, the accusing party. Israel puts God to the test. God, prove to us that you're really there. Because we know that if you were here, we wouldn't be thirsty. God, the one who has delivered this people, exercising his power and extending them grace, God, the one who has provided for their need and is leading them on their journey, God has every right to judge this people for their grumbling, to judge them for their hard hearts, for their unbelief. And in the moment where God has every right to judge his people, judgment indeed comes. It can be easy to miss as we go through this 46-second passage, but judgment comes. Because God says this in verse 6. I will stand before you there on that rock and you shall strike the rock. The significance of this rock isn't just that God was standing there. Because more than a thousand years after the scene at Horeb, the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to look back at this scene and interpret it for us. I've already made reference to this, but I skipped kind of the the best part of it. Here in these four verses that we're going to read together, we're going to see both this yellow warning sign and the green direction sign. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. All passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. You see that? The rock was Christ. This is Christ Jesus. Right here. Right here in Exodus 17, verse 6. God tells Moses to strike the rock. The rock is Christ. At the very moment when God could have struck His people in judgment, He has Moses strike the rock in judgment. Brothers and sisters, this is the Gospel. This is the same thing the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53 when he says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. But when this rock was struck in Exodus 17, water flowed forth. All the water that the hundreds of thousands of Israelites needed for life flowed from that rock. 
This rock didn't just take on God's judgment, but it poured forth God's blessing to his people. It poured out all they needed. The same is true of Jesus. Jesus knew that he was this rock. Jesus knew that when he came as a man, when he took on the form of a servant, he knew he was coming to die, to be the rock, to be bruised and pierced and crushed for us that we might have life. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Because the rock was strike, we have been healed. We are set free. This is the truth we love to sing about. We sang about it earlier. And on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Because the rock of Christ was struck, we find life. Horatius Bonner, he writes in Hallelujah, What a Savior, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. At the very point at which we should receive judgment for our sin, Christ died for us. You're familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus came to be the rock that would pour forth living waters. In John 7, during the Feast of Booths, this is a feast that Israel celebrated to remember their wandering in the wilderness, to remember and celebrate God's provision to them. During that feast, Jesus cries out on the last day, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He tells the Samaritan woman at the well before in John 4.14, he says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Exodus 17 is this green sign that points us forward to Christ because he is the satisfier of our souls. Israel's problem in Exodus 17 is that they didn't see God as enough. They didn't see God as sufficient. They had a heart problem that brought them to put God to the test. It brought them to say, God, you are not good enough for us. We can't trust you. Are you even there? Are you even with us? But God was there all along. God was there showcasing his power, showing his glory, his grace, his provision, putting on display his glory. And he did it for the Israelites in Exodus 17 to point forward to this greater and ultimate provision in Jesus. Because when we have Jesus, we have all we need. I I didn't plan that, but that was pretty cool. (laughs) When we have Jesus, we have all we need. One Scottish preacher, William McEwen, said this 250 years ago. He said, This river of God, which is full of water, can never run dry, nor be exhausted, This river can never run dry nor be exhausted, however abundantly we drink of its refreshing streams. Just like that rock in the wilderness that gave Israel all they need, Jesus, our rock, gives us all we need. Jesus Christ is the well that never runs dry. He is the satisfier of our souls. And our sin 
It acts to persuade us to drink from other wells, to go to another river. It tells us that God is not enough. So, brothers and sisters, if you have placed your hope in Jesus Christ, go to this well. Drink again and again from the grace that you've received in Jesus Christ. He indeed is enough. He's enough in every situation you face, in every circumstance. He is enough. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And if you haven't repented of your sins, I'd encourage you, implore you, turn to Jesus. Because this world promises empty wells. There's no water that can satisfy you in this world. Only Jesus can be the satisfier of your soul. Only Jesus can give you life. So look to Jesus this morning. Look to Him as enough for you. And there will never be a day where He is not enough. On Christ the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Oh Father, thank You for this signpost in the midst of Israel's wilderness wanderings that points us to the hope that is in You. Because You indeed sent Your Son to be our rock. You pour forth living waters that lead us to eternal life. Help us to live in the good of the grace of Your provision in Jesus Christ. Help us to know that You are indeed enough. Help us to heed the warning of this passage to to flee the, the dangerous direction of sin. Lord, help us to rest in Your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.